Everybody, good morning and welcome to CCC. Uh, so, so glad that you are here. Welcome those of you over in East Hall, those of you who are just tuning in. Uh, welcome. I love it that you are here and that you are a part of our church, so thanks. Uh, we are spending the month of November looking at surprisingly simple ways to make Jesus famous. And we're saying simple, we're not saying easy, and we're not saying shallow. The first week we talked about forgiveness. There is nothing easy about forgiveness. Last week we talked about generosity, and there's nothing shallow about generosity. Pastor Zach uh, told the story of how a simple act of bringing groceries to a new neighbor who just moved into the neighborhood actually changed the, the life of his family some 34 years ago. There's nothing shallow about that generosity. I was thinking about what it's going to be like a little more than a week from now when we deliver 1,500 Thanksgiving baskets, baskets that are full of enough food to provide a, a Thanksgiving feast for a whole family. We're going to knock on 1,500 doors, and when they open the doors, we're going to say, this is for you, and that will just be amazing. My favorite Thanksgiving basket story was told to me by a guy named Perry Clark, and Perry, he delivered some of the Thanksgiving baskets. I think this was a couple years ago. And he came back and he said, Pastor, I just delivered a Thanksgiving basket to a family, knocked on the door, a little girl opened the door. And I said, I have this Thanksgiving basket for you. And she looked up at me and she said, is there a turkey in there? And Perry said, he looked at her and he went, I don't know, let's see. And he sat it down and then he pulled out this big turkey and she, her eyes got wide and she squealed with delight. And then Perry asked her, honey, if, if you were not going to have turkey this Thanksgiving, what were you going to have for Thanksgiving? And she looked up at him and she said, we were going to have ramen noodles for Thanksgiving. And Perry looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, pastor, no little girl should have ramen noodles for Thanksgiving. 1,500 times we are going to knock on doors a little over a week from now. And we're going to tell people, this is for you. You are not forgotten. There is nothing shallow about generosity. Today we're going to talk about another uh, surprisingly simple way to make Jesus famous. It's a way that's much more powerful than it sounds. We're going to talk about hospitality. I don't even like the word hospitality. It seems so, I don't know, domestic. It seems so frilly. But believe me when I tell you that it is much more robust than you might think. In fact, if we ever really understood hospitality, if we ever really did it, it would and could have the power to change our world. I want to tell you three things about hospitality today. I want to tell you what it's not, I want to tell you what it is, and I want to tell you it's secret. What it's not, what it is, and what it's secret. All right, first, what it's not. This is not going to take very long, this first point. Hospitality, biblical hospitality is not entertaining. Right? With my apologies to Martha Stewart and all those cooking shows, but biblical hospitality isn't, doesn't mean that you can put on a gourmet spread and fold your napkins to look like swans. I don't, I don't know if you can do that or not. I just made that up. 
But that's not biblical hospitality. Right? It's not uh, the idea that you... It can include bringing people into your home for a meal or for a party, but the event is not the focus. It's more inviting them into your life and into your heart, but we'll get to that. So if you're great at hosting, if you're great at throwing parties, God can use that, but that's not what I'm talking about. So if biblical hospitality isn't entertaining and it's not hosting then what is it? That brings me to my second point, what it is. Hospitality is the power to create a world in which you want to live. Hospitality is the power to create a world in which you really want to live. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching And he says something in Matthew chapter 5 that is so jarring and so unsettling, it makes us want to just pass right over it. In fact, we hardly ever linger very long because it's hard to even comprehend. Everyone knows he said this, but no one really figures out how to wrap our heads around it. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. It's almost nonsensical. I want to say to Jesus, Jesus, uh, you don't understand. I can't love my enemies. That's why I call them my enemies. If I love them, I would call them something else. But Jesus says, love your enemies. And if we ever really did that, can you imagine what our world would be like? Can you imagine what politics would be like if we loved our enemies? Can you imagine what your school would be like, what your workplace would be like, what your neighborhood would be like, what your home might be like if we really loved our enemies? It's the power to change our world. Uh, Zach Wyrock came into work uh, about a week ago, and he uh, told me that his uh, daughter Sophie had just decided to become a follower of Jesus, that she had just given her heart to Jesus. And that's always just a great time for a Christian parent. It's an exciting thing, so I asked him, tell me, what happened? And he told me this story, that Sophie is their third child. Uh, Her older brother, Deacon, had already Uh, committed his life to Jesus and received Jesus as his Savior and Lord. Her older sister, Ava, had also become a follower of Jesus, and Ava had been working on Sophie, trying to convince her that she should also commit her life to Jesus, but Sophie was holding out. Sophie is seven years old. She was in second grade, and then she said she was going to school, and she, in her class, there was a little girl who was an outcast, 
that the other kids would make fun of this little girl, that no one would play with her, no one would talk with her, no one would sit with her and eat with her at lunch. And Sophie was watching this little girl. That's not, that wasn't Sophie's problem. Sophie had plenty of friends. She was very popular. She had never had a shortage of friends to talk with her, to play with her, to eat lunch with her. But she kept looking at this little girl. And even at seven years old, she realized that if, if she were to walk over and try to become this girl's friend, she could be burning bridges with the friends that she had. And she could end up on like a relational island with this other little girl. And this is the way she processed it. She went home and announced to her parents, I'm ready to become a follower of Jesus. And Zach and Amy were all excited, and they wanted to know what pushed her over the edge. They wanted to know if it was the the family worship time they would have, or, or was it something from the Jesus Storybook Bible that they read together? Or did Ava finally push her to the breaking point and make her receive Jesus? She said, no, none of that. She said, And she explained about the little girl. And she said it hit her that no one was going to risk their friends to go over and ever become friends with that little girl. And she said it struck her that that's not what Jesus would want. That's not what Jesus wants for the world. That's not Jesus' world. And then Sophie said, I want to become a part of Jesus' world. And tomorrow... I'm going to go make friends with that little girl. And she did. And the world of that little girl changed, and Sophie's world changed. I want you to imagine that second grade class and looking at it like a movie that's in black and white. And everybody's in black and white, and then Sophie gets up and she walks over to this little girl and she sits down with that little girl, and right then, just those two pop into living color. Everyone else is in black and white, but they're in color. That's Jesus' world. That's Jesus' world. It's a great story. Here's my question. What's that have to do with hospitality? And that brings me to the third point, the secret of hospitality, of biblical hospitality. In uh, Luke chapter 10, Jesus is standing around a group of people, and a lawyer comes up and asks Jesus a question. It's a great question. And when I say a lawyer, I don't mean like a civil attorney like we think of now. This was a a person who was an expert in the law of God. So he's more like a theologian or a preacher. And this is the question that he asked Jesus in Luke chapter 10. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. What he's saying is, hey, Jesus, uh, how does somebody get to heaven? How does somebody get to heaven? But it says that he was putting Jesus to the test. And the question is, why? What kind of test? And the reason he was testing Jesus is because of who Jesus was hanging out with. Everyone would watch who Jesus hung out with. And what shocked people was not just that he hung out with some unsavory people, some non-church people, but it seemed like Jesus really liked them, like he was friends with them. And so this lawyer comes up to Jesus while Jesus is hanging out with these friends, and he says, hey, hey, Jesus, I have a question. How does someone get to heaven? Because he expects Jesus to look at him and say, 
hey, God is a God of love. Everybody gets to go to heaven. And, and when he would say that, then all his unsavory friends would raise a glass to toast him and say, we love this guy. That's great. And then this theologian could turn to his other preacher friends and say, see this? Jesus doesn't even know what the Bible says. He doesn't even know what God is like. But that's not what Jesus says. It's what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I love that. Jesus is brilliant. He says to the guy, ah, uh, you're the expert. Tell me, what do you think? What do you think the Bible says of how to get to heaven? And this guy comes up with a great answer. He says, uh, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. That's the way to get to heaven. All right, so Jesus then turns to him and says this, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. You should imagine what that was like. Jesus says, you're the expert, you tell me. How does somebody get to heaven? And this guy goes, I'll tell you how. You need to love the Lord your God. He's looking at all these friends that are hanging around Jesus. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors as yourself. And Jesus goes, good answer. Dead on. Do that. And you'll get there. I'll see you there. You know? And this guy all of a sudden realizes it's about him. And he says, whoa, whoa, uh, wait a minute. Let's clarify some stuff. And he asks this. Verse 29, and he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? And what he's hoping is that Jesus is just going to say, oh, you know, your neighbor's the person you live next to or the person who's a lot like you. What he doesn't want is for Jesus to say, oh, your neighbor's a Democrat as well as a Republican or a liberal as well as a conservative. Or your, your neighbor is straight or could be gay. Or your neighbor is a Christian or could be a non-Christian. Jesus replies with a story, and it's a very famous story, and this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, you want to know who your neighbor is? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This story of the Good Samaritan is not just a story about good neighboring. It's a story about biblical hospitality. It's the pattern for hospitality. And this is what I mean. There are three steps to biblical hospitality. Step one, you see people in a way that others don't. 
You see people in a way that others don't. Step two, you care for them in a way that others won't. You care for them in a way that others won't. And then third step is you are willing to sacrifice for them so they can be healed and made whole. You're willing to sacrifice for them so that they may be healed and made whole. All right, first, you see people in a way that others don't. Jesus is making up this story of the Good Samaritan. And he's making up this story to make a point. And the Samaritan is the star of this story, but there are also other people in the story. There's a priest and there's a Levite. And the priest and the Levite also saw the man in the road who had been robbed and beaten, but they kept going. Only the Samaritan stopped because the Samaritan saw this man who was beaten and robbed in a different way than the priest and the Levite. Go back to Sophie's class for a minute. Everyone saw this little girl who was an outcast. Everyone knew about that little girl. But only Sophie saw her in a way where she had compassion, where she felt what she felt. Listen, our world is full. Your world is full of people who are longing for someone to see them to see them differently than anybody else sees them. There are people at your school. There are people at your workplace. There are people at the grocery store. There may be people in your row right now who are longing for someone to see them in a way that others don't. There's that song that says, this is for all the lonely people, thinking that life has passed them by. Our world is full of people who long for someone, someone like you, to be able to look at them and see them in a way that no one else does. Right? That's step one of hospitality. Step two is to be able to care for them in a way that others won't. Look what it says in this story, verse 34. It says, He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Commentators uh, have all kinds of reasons why the Levite and the priest walked by, but they all agree that at least one of the reasons why they walked by this man who had been robbed was because of danger. There weren't any villages nearby. There were obviously bad people close within close range. They didn't know if the robbers were still there. They didn't know if this was a setup. So the prudent thing to do was to keep moving and just get to where you were going to go. But the Samaritan stops. And he kneels down and he cares for this man. And I love verse 34 where it says that he put him on his own animal. I don't know why that struck me. It just seems like, like Jesus is trying to tell us that the Samaritan did something that was extraordinary. That it was very intimate. That he cared for me. He didn't just stop. What would make sense to me is if he stopped and he said, listen, uh, you hang in there. I'm going to go get help and I'll send him back. And then head on. That way he would do more than the priest and Levite, but he would also get himself out of danger. But that's not what the Samaritan does. The Samaritan leans down, cares for him, takes the time, binds up his wounds, then puts him on his own animal and takes him to an inn. Sometimes it's easy to have the first step of hospitality 
to begin to, to go out from here and begin to look for people and to see people in a way that others don't, but then want someone else to care for them. Where you find out something about somebody in the office, you say, hey, Dave's mom just died. Someone needs to call him. Somebody needs to do something for him. I don't really know him that well. I don't know what to say. It happens in churches all the time, by the way, where people will, you'll notice something and you'll call a pastor or something to say, you need to do something for this person. And I get why we do that. Because uh, you don't know whether, whether you are the right person. You don't know if you know what to say or what to do, right? But the Samaritan, he stopped. And what's interesting about this story is it doesn't say that the Samaritan had any particular skills that were for this kind of situation. It doesn't, doesn't say that he used to be a paramedic, you know, and then he comes and he knows exactly what to do. It just says that he's just a normal person who knew that he was the one to do what had to be done right then. Go back to Sophie's class. Sophie could have noticed that girl, step one, had compassion on her, and then gone to the teacher and said, hey, have you seen this little girl? No one plays with her. No one talks with her. No one has lunch with her. You should do something. You should put her in a group. You need to do something. That's not what Sophie did. Sophie was the one who walked over to the little girl and said, Hi, my name's Sophie. What's your name? And sat down. Who knew how that was going to go? There's no, Sophie is seven years old. There's no way she thought, you know what? Out of all the people in the world, I am best equipped to handle this situation. But she went over. Who knew how it would work out? Who knew what they would talk about? Who knew what this little girl, how this little girl would receive Sophie? Not Sophie. She didn't know. But Sophie did those first two steps of hospitality. She saw someone in a different way than what anybody else saw, and then she cared for her in a way that no one else would. And that brings me to the third point, be willing to sacrifice for somebody to be healed and made whole. Verse 35 of this story says this, And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend... I will repay you when I come back. You see what he does? This Samaritan goes to the innkeeper and pays him two denarii, which is a sum of money, but then he like leaves a credit card. And he says, listen, whatever it takes to make this guy whole, whatever it takes to heal him, I'll pay. I'll pay. Sophie, when she got up to walk across to be that little girl's Friend, you've seen the movies, right? When somebody gets up from the popular table and then walks over to care for the outcast, how the, the popular table begins to just be horrified and they know that she's going to this relational island and for all Sophie knew, she was going to be stuck there for the rest of her second grade year. But still, she was willing to sacrifice so that that girl could experience healing, could be made whole. I told you I was going to give you the secret of biblical hospitality. Right? The secret of biblical hospitality, if you're going to be a part of this, the surprisingly simple way to make Jesus famous, you need to see people in a way that others don't. You need to care for them in a way that others won't, and then you need to be willing to sacrifice for them so that they can be healed and made whole. 
And I told you that hospitality was much more robust than it seems. In fact, if we ever really understood it, if we ever started to do it, it would have the power to actually change our world. It could actually change our world to be like Jesus' world. And you get why, right? Right? If we start to do that, it becomes Jesus' world because that's what Jesus did for us. This is what Jesus did for you. Jesus, step one, saw you, sees you in a way that no one else does. He sees you in a way that you don't even see yourself. He didn't see you in the way that you want others to see you. He doesn't see you, the church you. He sees you with all your fears and all your insecurities. He sees you with all your selfishness and all your brokenness and all your pain. He sees you that you, you think you're part saint and part sinner. He sees that you sometimes love yourself and sometimes hate yourself. Jesus sees you as you, and he sees you as someone who needs a Savior. But Jesus doesn't stop just with step one and seeing you in a way that others don't. Jesus cares for you in a way that others won't. He doesn't write you off, and he doesn't excuse you. Instead, he comes for you. He comes for you. In just a couple weeks, we're going to head into December and start our Christmas series. And in our Christmas series, we're going to talk about the incarnation, that movement of God through Jesus to come for us. The incarnation is that, that threefold movement of love that's instinctive to every single human being. You know what it is. It's that movement to give up, go to, be with, because you love someone. It's the movement that every parent has made dozens of times where they hear their child cry out and they stop what they're doing to run to, to be with. We give up, go to, be with because we love them. A friend calls you in the middle of the night and says, can you come now? I need you now. And you drop what you're doing, you give up, go to, be with because of the love you have for your friend. It's the movement of love. It's the movement that Jesus has made for you because of his love for you. So Jesus not only does the first step, which is to see you in a way that others don't, he's done the second step, will care for you in a way that others won't, but the third one is he sacrifices so that you can be healed and made whole. Let me ask you this, what would it take to make your soul, to heal your soul deep down? What would it take to make your relationship with God whole? A sacrifice, it would be a sacrifice more than bandages, more than oil. It would be a sacrifice so deep, it's almost beyond our comprehension. But just like the Samaritan says to the innkeeper, listen, whatever it takes to make this guy whole, whatever it takes to heal him, I will pay the price. So Jesus goes to God the Father, and he, look, he points at you, and he says, whatever it takes to make her whole, whole. Whatever it takes to heal his relationship with you, I will pay the price. And then Jesus does. And he goes to the cross to pay the price for you and for me and resurrects with power so that we might know the price has been paid. Right? Listen, I want you to see the world like in black and white where everyone is in black and white and then Jesus reaches down and he touches you and you pop into living color and then he sends you out to touch other people 
like all through this black and white world. And as you reach out to touch people, as you begin to do what he has done for you, you begin to create a world in which you really want to live. You begin to create Jesus' world. A place where you move out and you see you're looking for at least one person this coming week. One person where you you will see them in a way that others don't. You will care for them in a way that others won't. And you're willing to sacrifice so that they may be healed and made whole. You want a way to make Jesus famous? Looking at surprisingly simple ways? This is a question. How long before that little girl in that second grade class, turns and asks Sophie about Jesus. You want to make Jesus famous. Hospitality is a surprisingly simple way to make him famous. Even a second grader can show us how. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you now, and we are so grateful. We're grateful for the movement that you made toward us, I'm so grateful that you have seen us in the way that others don't, that you have cared for us in a way that others won't, that you have sacrificed to heal us and make us whole. And now I pray that you would send us out as people in living color to touch other people in such a way that they will begin to long for you, that they will ask us why we are the way we are, and we can tell them that we have a Savior and his name is Jesus. Help us to not only live in your world, but I pray that everywhere we go, we will create Jesus' world for your sake, for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.